I'm Alex Mosette and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. First topic of the day is this $100 million DuckDuckGo fundraise. Uh, if you don't know what DuckDuckGo is, it's uh, an alternative to um, <laughs> Google search. It's actually interesting, though, because DuckDuckGo hasn't built its entire search engine from scratch. DuckDuckGo actually has kind of built their search engine solution um, on top of uh, an existing solution, but then they bring a lot more privacy and they kind of skin it to be different. What was news to me was that they there's this recent uh, information coming out here that they've actually raised $100 million uh, at the end of 2020 and uh, have been profitable since 2014 and are doing over $100 million in revenue. So you're seeing now multiple up-and-coming tech startup alternatives to big tech monopolies that their positioning in the marketplace is, you know, better privacy, freedom of speech, one or the other, some mixture of the two, you know, take control of your data, remove yourself from censorship by, by big tech monopolies. You know, I use DuckDuckGo. That's my default search engine. I think there's a lot of people out there that that, that message is, certainly resonates with. Now they're getting into email, other solutions on Android devices. You know, this $100 million is essentially going to go towards a lot of product development resources. Uh, and, and kind of just bolstering and accelerating a lot of growth for a company that's kind of been a little bit under the radar in, you know, who would have thought this company has been profitable for years and is, is doing over $100 million in revenue. 50 million installs in, uh, in 2020, projecting that to grow uh, by 50% to 75 million in 2021. Here's their uh, search growth. You can see here queries per month. Nice looking chart. That's that's the chart that every uh, startup wants to be able to to show investors. They've been taking out uh, outdoor advertising, which is funny uh, when you think about it, what their product is doing. But they've been taking out billboard ads to promote what they're doing as it relates to privacy and and other kinds of advertising. So money is going into advertising. It's going into more product development. They have Tim Berners Lee here. Uh, I think he created the internet and um, you know, some other really impactful uh, investors that have, that have been involved with them for a while. How does DuckDuckGo work? Because if you, if you think about it and you say, how, how is this company competing with Google and Microsoft, but you know, doing a little over $100 million in revenue and profitable since 2014? Something in that equation doesn't make sense, right? Like, how? How is that possible? And so the answer is that DuckDuckGo is not building its own kind of end-to-end -end search engine competitor. Instead, what they're doing, DuckDuckGo gets its results from over 400 sources. These include hundreds of vertical sources delivering niche instant answers, DuckDuckBot, our crawler, our crowdsource sites like Wikipedia. And we also have more traditional links in the search results. Uh, which we also source from multiple partners, though most commonly from Bing and none from Google. You punch in a query into DuckDuckGo and then they're, you know, think about it. 
as them basically going to Bing and 399 other sources, sucking all that information in and then presenting it to you in the DuckDuckGo feed. But is DuckDuckGo replicating Bing or Google search? No, they are not. There'd be no way that they can invest in that and it would just be untenable. There's certainly no way they could be profitable uh, for the past seven years now. So I'd always heard that DuckDuckGo and Bing were very closely related. You can kind of see that this is actually from DuckDuckGo's you know, website where they talk about where do they get their sources. And, and right here on the page, they're telling you that we get a lot of our stuff from Bing and none from Google. So, you know, I would say this is kind of like a, a Microsoft Bing search result with a little bit of DuckDuckGo secret sauce and privacy. And that's kind of the, the product, right? Very interesting approach. If that's what it takes to present uh, a good alternative to, to Google search, search's stranglehold um, on their cash cow tech monopoly, so be it. And I'm a user. Wish DuckDuckGo continued success. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully they can um, keep that, that hockey stick curve going. So uh, next topic is what has COVID done to e-commerce? There's a re recent report out here saying that the pandemic accelerated the shift to e-commerce by five years. We've kind of heard that from different sources. This is coming from IBM's uh, uh, you know, retail index report. So COVID has accelerated the shift by five years to e-commerce. You are a large retailer and you have not been investing in e-commerce. Then you certainly saw the pain of that during COVID. And if you had been in e-commerce, then you see some of the benefit. So now you're seeing, for example, Neiman Marcus here buying this company, Stylize. And, um, you know, what... This is a baby company. They'd raise like $3 million. The Seattle startup sells merchandising as a service software. They provide retailers with product attribution data, digital outfit, and room builders, content creation tools. And, you know, this is a common thing when you think about, okay, what, what is it that I need to do e-commerce better? Yeah, there's the, the functional bit of I need to be able to sell products online and have a good shopping experience and all that kind of stuff. But one of the key things, whether it's on the, the B2C or the B2B side is product data. And that's clearly something that the big tech monopolies have investing in just product data. How do you, how do you, how you solve for product data in a platform, in a marketplace model exponentially increases the challenge to solve for that product data, because now that product data isn't just coming from products that you buy and you resell, right? If you're a linear retailer or a linear distributor, you're buying products and you're reselling those products. It's a much more finite number of SKUs. You have you know, much more control over much deeper relationships with the suppliers and the manufacturers. You can, you can really uh, uh, focus in on solving for that product data challenge much more easily. When you now get to a marketplace model and you now have a myriad of third-party sellers, right? The, the whole pitch of a marketplace is that you have a bunch of third-party sellers and they're bringing a lot of their products to your marketplace. They're expanding your product catalog. 
They're giving a more comprehensive offering to the end consumer. But then how do you solve for product data in that environment? Much more difficult challenge. So what's interesting is that Neiman Marcus is now in 2021 buying a a tech startup to solve for product data, a baby tech startup, might I add. So what are you to do if you are an existing large incumbent retailer and it's 2021 and you're trying to figure out how you invest more in e-commerce and just from a technology stand, transactional standpoint as well as a product data standpoint and then from a fulfillment standpoint how do you stay competitive there's really no way you can do this all on your own as evidenced by what neiman marcus is doing here i would even go a step further and say that if, if COVID has shown us anything, you've seen now e-commerce uh, buying behavior accelerate by five years. Buying a company that's raised $3 million, that's just the tip of the iceberg. When you look at the capex that's needed to solve these problems, even if you're not trying to do marketplace, but just solve these problems in a way that gives you that, that merchandisable e-commerce experience which is product descriptions, which is images, which is product recommendations, which is fulfillment, which is a whole bunch of things. It's very challenging to do. And you're really not going to be able to do it all on your own. So then what do you do between partnering, licensing, investing, buying? There's a lot of catch up that needs to be done and, and doing it all on your own is not going to do it. And if you're only licensing tools from third parties, then you're not really going to have a differentiated experience either. That challenge is even further evidence with secondhand inventory, not new inventory, but now used inventory. So, you know, if, if you are a, a, a retailer, man, you, you have so many competitive forces coming at you. It's a, it's a very difficult position to navigate from. So anyway, before we get to that, Let's talk about Huawei. Articles coming out. Huawei's Harmony OS has 134,000 apps. Over 4 million developers have already signed on. Wow. Wow. Huawei. Huawei's Harmony must really be on a tear here. You got the BBC covering this thing. Huawei operating system coming to smartphones in Asia. Wow. Look at that. Look at that screenshot. Doesn't that look amazing? No, doesn't look amazing. <laughs> and, and this thing, as we've talked about before, exclude China from the equation because China is, as we've talked, you know, China's its, its own separate uh, quagmire. But platforms are winner take all. There's only room for two winners, not three. You've got Android and iOS. And how is it possible for, for Huawei to really penetrate that hold uh, between those two dominant operating systems? And the answer is it's not really possible. Huawei is trying to drum up a lot of press on this. Huawei was trying to get all of the other Chinese handset manufacturers to join an alliance. We haven't really heard much about that anymore. That news kind of popped up and then it kind of went away. There's now more articles. Yeah, they've got 4 million developers have signed up. But when you really dig down into this thing, this is really just a lot of hot air. 
developers from China, Europe, and Latin America have, can all participate. They could win a million dollar prize pool. What is that's not going to move the needle. And basically, when you dig down into this even more, what you come to realize is this is really just a couple of things. Okay. What you come to realize is a couple of things. One, this is just happening in China. Two, they've basically just taken Android and forked it and made a slightly different version of Android and called it Harmony OS. Which, you know, a bunch of people do. You could, you could say Samsung does the same thing by taking Android and customizing their own flavor of Android for Samsung devices. It's not too much different than that. So that's a big spin on this. It is a little bit more than what Samsung's doing, but it's not much different. That's how when uh, Harmony and Huawei are saying that your Android apps in China will still work on Harmony OS. That's how they're able to do that because they're actually still using Android and Android is open source and forking it to launch this Harmony OS thing. You can see when you dig deeper here, this is from Harmony, right? Harmony OS update schedule for current Huawei devices running Android. Oh, key part of this whole thing in China. No one wants this switch if you're outside of China. Can Huawei create their own version of Android and like kind of fork it? But but all the apps in China were different anyway. So, you know, you, you kind of need to make a slightly different version of your app to work on Harmony OS, but it's still running Android. But you're going to need to make a different app anyway for it to operate in China already. So this is really just kind of much to do about nothing. And the other thing is that Huawei is also making... The statement that uh, they are the third largest uh, operating system in the country or in the world, that's also fake news because this thing, iOS, it's not a smartphone operating system. This is really for like really kind of low utility uh, emerging market, you know, very low memory, really uh, uh, kind of as entry level as you get phone operating systems. But this company called KaiOS, this was actually from a couple of years ago, uh, raised another $50 million that Google actually invested in. And they're actually based out of Hong Kong and uh, working on kind of really like more like feature phone kind of phones to power those experiences. So it's also fake news that Huawei is saying, hey, we have the third you know, biggest operating system in the world. It's actually KaiOS. Now, maybe Huawei needs to clarify and say for like smartphone, true kind of fully featured smartphones, maybe they're there, but it's just in China. So how is this thing really going to become a thing outside of China? I don't know. It's uh, wouldn't lose too much sleep over this. It's very hard. It's, you can't go up against the big tech monopolies, Google and, and Apple. Huawei's trying to do something, but. Pretty big uphill battle on that front. Okay, so next topic is um, the other challenge with marketplaces. That I was t speaking, you know, when we were talking about uh, uh, Neiman Marcus and 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 the acquisition is Amazon's actually facing a probe in the UK over fake reviews. 
which yeah, you know, fine. It's, it's something good, you know, going up against the big tech monopolies, but at the same time, this isn't the silver bullet to, to bring down the big tech monopolies. But what's interesting is Amazon has published a piece on their site talking about what they do to combat fake reviews. There's a couple stats in here, which I thought were pretty interesting. In 2020, we stopped more than 200 million suspected fake reviews before they were ever seen by a customer. Wow. Over 200 million suspected fake reviews. More than 99% of reviews enforcement was driven by kind of their, their algorithmic uh, proactive detection. You talk about how they're trying to go into social media groups. They've filed lawsuits <laughs> against people who have purchased reviews and the service providers who have enacted and written those fake reviews. So, I mean, again, the, the step between solving just for a good retail e-commerce experience and then making the leap to marketplace, let alone talking about product data and just the e-commerce technology. Then you just think about, okay, if you're actually successful, how do you just have a have a good and and properly functioning review system it's a whole other thing in and of itself why the uk is coming after them to go after fake reviews there's probably other things that you could focus on with these tech monopolies that would be better suited to go after but that's just one sliver of of the differential between a linear e-commerce uh, challenge versus a marketplace challenge next topic is actually amazon's prime day which is which is somewhat lackluster Bank of America says they were soft compared with last year. Amazon Prime Day usually is in June. Because of COVID, it was pushed into October. So they're saying, oh, well, they had less time in between the Prime Day and, and last year, Prime Day in October had more time, right? And all this back and forth. But when you think about it, who really knows when, like Amazon Prime Day, you know, it kind of is it really a momentous event? Uh, do, you, do, do you think about whenever it is supposed to happen in mid-June, like, oh, Amazon Prime Day is coming up in mid to late June. Better save my shopping for the Amazon Prime Day. Um, whereas in China, Alibaba, they launched Singles Day. And Singles Day, it's, it's memorable because it happens on November 11th. So it's a bunch of ones. And, you know, at least there's something special. It's kind of also getting into the holiday season. Uh, obviously, in the U.S., you already have Black Friday and then Cyber Monday, and, and that's already become an event. But I don't know. It's kind of just somewhat of a random day in mid to late June. In China, you have all these other retailers and e-commerce brands that have now piled on to Singles Day that are then trying to do their own version of it, even though Alibaba, you know, spawned it. That kind of started to happen with Prime Day in the U.S., but this one was certainly not as, I would say, impactful or eventful. Uh, Amazon was trying to do some stuff around content and Amazon uh, Prime Video to promote it, but it kind of seemed like it just, it came and it went. And um, I... I I don't know. I think Amazon needs to do a little bit of work on this if this is going to still be uh, a a uh, a memorable shopping event in in America. Um, a little lackluster. Some analysts were arguing otherwise, but I would say I, I would agree with this Bank of America opinion. Okay. Next topic. Closing closing us out around you know uh, trends in retail and um, really kind of secondhand fashion. 
talked a lot about all the different areas that we're seeing secondhand fashion really accelerate, whether it's used clothing sites that have a a, a lower average price point. We've talked about uh, Vestiaire Collective. Vestiaire Collective, uh, based out of France, they raised a monster round, uh, over $200 million financing round a few months ago back in March. You've got now news that Etsy is acquiring Depop uh, for $1.6 billion based out of London. So, you know, when we were covering Vestiaire, it's really kind of Vestiaire and Depop were the you know were the tag team uh, kind of two two leading players there in Europe, and you know I, I actually think this is a great move um, for Etsy. I really like how Etsy is handled going through into the pandemic. Pandemic was a huge accelerant for Etsy's business. They have been making a lot of really good moves. Their stock is on fire. They're you know trying to expand more internationally. Now they're doing this Depop deal. It begs the question kind of like, what is eBay doing, right? Depop's GMV was $670 million in 2020 and was growing at 100% year over year. You know, look at that GMV to, to valuation uh, multiple, right? That's, that's well over a 1x GMV to valuation multiple. If they're doing $670 million in GMV, getting acquired for 1.6, even if they can continue to double in 2021, which we're almost halfway through, let's say they can do $1.4 billion in 2021, you're still paying uh, a premium, you know, or over a 1x premium on GMV to valuation, which is just, and that's, that's, uh, that's frothy. Um, now, you know, here's, here's a press release from eBay, September of last year, talking about secondhand sales. This is actually out of uh, the UK part of their business. And but it it's 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 very it's very kind of soft numbers. They're really not giving you many specifics in this. Uh, they talk about fashion here. When it comes to fashion in 2020, we have left out our usual office attire and switched out a more formal look for a new Zoom outfit. The shirt and sweat, you know, they're kind of getting cute in this press release. Here are the stats they release. Two second-hand fashion items sold every three seconds between January and July this year. So <laughs> why is it so coded? What do you need to go do? Go calculate, okay, how many seconds are there in a day? Okay, now we know how many items were sold in a day. Now let's multiply that by whatever, right? And do your calculation. You say, okay, they're selling um, millions, if not, you know, low tens of millions of secondhand fashion items. Okay, interesting. But no GMV numbers, nothing here that you can really, nothing concrete. And to me, what that would say is maybe they're playing it close to the chess. But at the same time, e eBay's uh, uh, former CEO, Devin Wenig, he left the company. They have an activist investor in there. Um, you know, e eBay stock has been doing well, but. You know, they're just, I think they're trying to do a lot of this organically. Meanwhile, Etsy's making moves. You know, what is eBay doing? Is eBay kind of staying stagnant? It's, it feels like eBay is staying kind of stagnant, trying to just do things organically. The stock is up, but it's up and it's down. And this secondhand space is just blowing up. 
Goat just raised more money at a $3.7 billion valuation, raising another $200 million. Now, this is in the high end. What's eBay doing? eBay, you want to you, you wanna go for the lower end, kind of the Vestiaire and the Depop? You want to go into the high end, what Goat and uh, Farfetch is doing and, um, and uh, StockX is doing. And well, what are you doing? Is, are you really able to just go it alone in this space? I would say no, right? Like use one of these companies, use M&A as a mechanism to accelerate your own growth, eBay. Just seems like a missed opportunity for them. And there's so much activity across the spectrum of, of quote unquote, second hand here. And, and, I, and I really like how Etsy is, is leaning into it, taking action, and going after it. So good for them. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us. I will talk to you later.